the one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and, and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Father in heaven, Jesus said uh, that uh, no one who gives up uh, houses and family and all the many wonderful things of this world for the kingdom will uh, fail to receive far more, even in this life and in the age to come, life everlasting. Father, grant us to be a people who uh, so deeply trust you, who see the reasons to so deeply trust you, um, that we might give ourselves wholly to you, and in giving ourselves wholly to you, receive that exaltation which is beyond our capacity to imagine, much less desire. And so will you, as we prayed in the collect, graft in our hearts a love that is not our own. Graft within our hearts a love of your name. Graft within our hearts a trust we cannot produce. Graft within our hearts a trust of you that leads us to give all that we are and receive all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> uh, we're going to be looking at both uh, uh, readings. We're going to start with the second reading. Um, humility is uh, one of those words that doesn't immediately bring up massive uh, fear for me. Like it doesn't sound like an overly frightening term, doesn't sound like an overly compelling term. It's just kind of like humility. Uh, it's kind of like middle of the road, something like that. Um, I think, though, that must mean that I don't understand the meaning of the word. Uh, take a look at the reading. Take a look at the second reading. And uh, there's, right in the middle, the middle long paragraph is one of those stories that is just shocking at all kinds of levels. Um, so what happens is a ruler walks up to Jesus. Uh, this is not a political ruler. This would have been uh, the ruler of a synagogue, the leader of a local synagogue. And he walks up to Jesus and he asks what strikes me as one of the best questions that you can possibly ask, at least within a religious community. Verse 18, he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that, that seems like a good question, especially if you're hanging out in a religious community. And, and Jesus honors the question and he says, in effect, well, um, you know the commandments. Why don't you do a little bit of a uh, moral self-audit? Um, and then he mentions five out of the Ten Commandments. Um, Jesus says, remember, no adultery, no murder, no theft, no lying, and honor your father and, and your mother. And Jesus asks, well, so how, how are you doing on those things? And the man responds, verse 21, well, actually, thank you for asking, I'm doing pretty well. Like, I've been keeping all of those since I was young. 
Now, Emmanuel, stop right at that point. Uh, and especially if you already know this story, try to think about it again for the first time. Like at this point, Jim is impressed, right? Like this sounds like this guy's doing well. Uh, he's a successful leader within his community. Uh, he's well regarded by everybody around him, clearly, and he's deeply committed to moral integrity. What's not to like? And I, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, that certainly I think my parents wanted me to grow up, you know, a, a successful life undergirded by a moral integrity, right? Uh, if you're a parent, isn't this what you want for your kid? A successful life undergirded by moral integrity. Um, and wouldn't we think that this is what God wants for us, a successful life undergirded by moral integrity? And yet, this is where it starts to get shocking. Take a look at verse 22. Jesus hears this guy's response, and his reaction appears to be the opposite of what I would expect. Jesus says, one thing still you lack. Sell what you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying to this man who lives a successful life undergirded by moral integrity, Jesus says, actually, you need to dismantle your life. At a fundamental level, you need to uh, dismantle your life right back to the foundations. You need to divest yourself of the wealth that up until this point has told you you're okay, and you need to start over by following me with a humble poverty. And I want to go, what in the world? Like, what are you, what, Jesus, what? I don't understand. Now, why is Jesus so severe with this guy? Now, we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I, I just want to point out, Emmanuel, uh, that following Jesus, and this is clear from one bit of the Bible to the other, following Jesus is not just a superficial fine-tuning of your life. It's important that we say that clearly. It's not that most of us have most of life plausibly okay, and then Jesus helps us just top up the remainder. It's more fundamental than that. Jesus, and this is true for all of us, Jesus intends to dismantle and reconstruct your life. And he intends to do that in a fundamental way. Now, does that sound frightening? It sounds frightening to me, but what I want to show you today is that as frightening as this is, it's good. Jesus intends to dismantle our lives, not because he's cruel, but because he's kind. Jesus dismantles and he reconstructs our lives from the ground up because he wants to build us up in such a way that he can exalt us. That's a weird word, but I'm going to use it a lot. He wants to exalt us beyond our capacity to imagine it, and certainly beyond our capacity to desire it. Now, let me give you a framework for understanding a little bit about how this works. Turn over uh, to the first reading. At the very end, verse 14, Jesus says this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What in the world does that mean? Well, let me try to say it simply, and then we'll look at some illustrations throughout our readings, okay? Um, 
Part of what's going on is this. Jesus is pointing out how uh, every one of us has a deep-seated orientation towards self-exaltation. And a lot of us, this deep-seated orientation towards self-exaltation is so deeply ingrained that we don't even recognize that it's there. Uh, now, for some of us, it's kind of straightforward because some people are just obviously ambitious and you can just look at them and you can see that they've oriented their life toward their own ambition, toward their own exaltation and, and things like that. But it's not just that. I might look at myself and conclude that I am a profound failure. But even if that's the case, very often my sense of failure, even my self-loathing, can often be the disappointment and the self-hatred that comes from deeply believing that I should have had it all together, that I should have had the resources needed to exalt myself. It's the disappointment of seeking self-exaltation and not achieving it like we expected that we would, and therefore we put the blame on ourselves and we loathe ourselves and we consider ourselves a failure, but it's the shadow side of this pursuit of self-exaltation. And what it is, is deep down, many of us, and in one way, all of us, we have a deep desire and it's understandable. I want to hold the cards in my life. I want to be in control of my life. I want to know that I'm okay, that I'm not a bum, that I'm worth something. And therefore, the most intuitive way to do that is to center upon myself, to rely upon the resources I have at hand within myself. And I want to do everything I can to arrange my life so that I can maximize self-exaltation in whatever form most resonates with me. And Jesus is saying, intuitive as that point, approach to life is, it's a rotten tooth that's going to have to be pulled. And it's a rotten tooth that's going to have to be pulled because, according to Jesus, one day the pursuit of self-exaltation will fail. For some of us who have had the gift of failure, we've tasted that bitter fruit already. For some of us who have been cursed by success, it's still beyond our grasp. Now, Let's flesh this out a little bit with some examples. Uh, take a look at the first reading, verse 9. So uh, in this reading, uh, or this story, two guys go up to the temple to pray. Feels like the beginning of, this, of a joke, but it's not. So that was, I was almost funny, but then stopped just short. So two guys go, go to the temple to pray. And one guy's a Pharisee, one guy's a tax collector. Now, um, if you've been around church for a while, you know that these, you, you kind of know these characters a little bit. So the Pharisee is like a religious ninja. Uh, the tax collector is slimy. And the tax collector is slimy because uh, he collaborates with the Romans and he props up the unjust uh, Roman system of oppression. And that's the way he's viewed. And when you, so when Jesus uh, brings out these two characters to the crowd that's listening to Jesus, it's clear who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. But then look at verse 11. The Pharisee, pretty good guy, uh, the way he talks about himself, it's pretty clear that uh, he shows financial integrity. He shows relational and sexual integrity. He's not an adulterer. He's generous. He tithes. He fasts a lot. Uh, he's a successful man whose life is undergirded by moral integrity. I'm sure his parents are proud of him. 
But look more closely at verse 11. And watch what it is that the Pharisee says to God, and watch what it is that he says about himself. Verse 11, he says, God, I thank you. Now, stop right there. Um, just to be clear, when you thank God, it's uh, traditional to thank God about something God has done or to thank God about something that God is, some aspect of his character. But that's not what the Pharisee does. Take a look at it. The Pharisee begins as if he's thanking God, but what he does is he uses it as an opportunity to wax eloquent about his remarkable superiority and how that has shaped his entire identity. Verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. In other words, God, thank you that I am better than average and you're welcome. Now, do you see the self-exaltation there, right? He wants to find a way to exalt himself. He needs to accumulate evidence to reassure himself that he's okay, maybe that he's amazing. And he finds religion and the moral life very, very useful for that. So he performs the heck out of his religion so that he can admire himself even in prayer. Which is to say, he's not worshiping God. He's self-exalting, which is another way of saying he's worshiping ultimately himself. Now, in the Bible, um, the first commandment is uh, love God. The Pharisee in this context is not loving God, even when he worships. He's using it as an excuse to love himself in an unhealthy way. The Bible's second commandment on the priority list is love your neighbor. And notice that this Pharisee's self-exaltation comes at the cost of holding contempt towards others, verse 9. Now, what I want you to see, Emmanuel, is how self-exaltation works. And if at all possible, try to recognize it in your own heart. It's a rotten tooth. It's got to be pulled. But then look at the tax collector. Verse 13, the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now that's humility. Although we ought to be clear about something, humility is not self-loathing. Humility, it, remember what I said before, self-loathing can often be a way, uh, the shadow side of self-exaltation. Humility is something different. Humility is the decentering of the self and the recentering of God and his mercy in its place. His focus is ultimately more on God's mercy than it is even on himself. Now, penitence has a place here because the tax collector has real sin that really needs to be dealt with. But the heart of humility is not thinking less of the self, it's thinking more about God, and it's resting upon God rather than the self for our ultimate exaltation. See, it's not, humility is not the rejection of exaltation. It's the true pathway to exaltation. The tax collector gets exalted. Did you notice? Verse 14, he goes home justified. Now, the word justified is a really big Bible word. 
it's a word that comes from the law court. And if you're justified, it means that the judge has declared you not guilty and innocent and acquitted and vindicated and even not just not guilty, but positively righteous. And in this context, it means something remarkable. It means that in a deep way, God himself is, in a sense, praising this man. God saying, that guy is my guy. That guy's not only been pardoned, he's the real deal. He's the person I consider righteous, and he will enjoy my favor for forever. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable exaltation from the mouth of God himself. Now, um, by the way, Emmanuel, we should remember that the people we intuitively admire are not always the people God exalts. God exalts the humble, not the self-exalting. And it's worth pausing to ask the question, how would your life and mine change if we actually believed it? Let's look at another example of humility. Um, look at the first reading in the first story. Uh, this is a great example of a uh, exemplary activist. So uh, this is a widow, she's experiencing injustice. Uh, she goes to the judge, the judge doesn't care about her at all. Uh, she, that, she, she doesn't stop, she keeps on going, she doesn't take no for an answer. Uh, and eventually the judge uh, caves and, and gives her justice. Now, the point of the story is not that God is anything like the unrighteous judge. The, uh, the point is that God is the opposite. God, is, uh, God loves to give justice to his people. In fact, God is more committed to justice than anyone on earth can even imagine. And Jesus' point is, therefore, do not lose heart. You can trust God's commitment to justice, to deliver justice, and therefore pray and don't give up. Now, this is another way that God exalts the humble. There is very little in this world that will unseat toxic self-exaltation more completely than persevering prayer. And there is very little in this world that will exalt the humble like persevering prayer will. Let me try to explain this. When you pray, when you pray over a period of time about an issue, it will force you to come, terms, come to terms with your self-exaltation. Because almost certainly there will be part of you, if you're anything like me, I find within myself when I'm praying about something for a while and I don't see a response, there is a voice in my head that says, oh, I knew it, I knew it. Doesn't work. God's as deaf as I always thought he was. I tried. I tried. Don't tell me I didn't try. I tried. Gave him a chance. He had all the chances. So I better, I, better, I better focus again upon myself and take matters into my own hands. And that's very understandable, isn't it? And many of us in this room know that pain. And it's teeth grinding. And yet, it's both a lie, and it will cut us off from the exaltation that God desires to give us. Because when you persevere in prayer, God, on the one hand, gives you what you need 
though that doesn't always look precisely like what we asked. But on the other hand, and perhaps even more deeply, God over time shows you his faithfulness in the long story. Um, this past week, I was listening to a, a podcast. A man called Justin Gibney was uh, being interviewed. He's the um, leader of the AND campaign. He's a public, uh, a Christian public intellectual. And he was commenting on Juneteenth, so last Monday. And he made the point, among many other points, he made the point that uh, the black church has always understood Juneteenth to be a signpost of God's faithfulness and answered prayer. He made the point that on the one hand, of course, uh, uh, the black church uh, understands the liberation of the enslaved peoples in the United States to be a great act of liberation in its own right. And because they understand it to be the result of persevering prayer, they also see it to be a signpost of God's character and a signpost of his mercy and a signpost of his faithfulness so that this day is not only a day that celebrates something beautiful politically, it's something that celebrates something beautiful about God's own character. And the signpost and the vision of God's faithfulness is one of the greatest visions. Indeed, it is the greatest vision that you will ever see. You were made to see the glory of God. And it's in persevering prayer that God begins to unveil his glory to you. Now, keep all that in your mind and go back to the rich ruler. Second reading. Verse 22, Jesus tells him, hey, you're going to have to get rid of your possessions and you'll have treasure in heaven and then you need to come and follow me. Notice Jesus' end game. Follow me. Now, follow me doesn't here just mean, uh, doesn't mean just physical following, though in this context, he probably meant literally come and live with me on the road. It meant that. It also meant obeying Jesus, but it meant more than that as well. Following Jesus is a relational thing as well. So that following Jesus means knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and receiving Jesus's love and obeying out of that experience of intimacy. And so the point here is not just that the rich young ruler needed to be more generous. He did need to be more generous, but the Pharisee was generous. You can be generous and completely miss the point. Jesus is calling this man to give away all of his money because his money up until that point was his preferred path to self-exaltation. And Jesus says, we're going to have to amputate that aspect of your life precisely because something better is going to be given to you. Jesus wants to give this man himself. It's what the Lord wants to give you in persevering prayer. It's what the Lord wants to give you when you experience justification, not when you come bearing your best to God, but when you come giving him your worst. Jesus wants to give you himself. And there's no greater exaltation than that. And I think that's part of the point, not the only point, but part of the point of Jesus' discussion of children. Verse 17, Jesus says, if you're going to receive the kingdom, you got to receive it like a kid. I think part of what that means is, is that a child, uh, a child is born dependent, not upon the self, but upon another. 
And if all goes well and the, church, uh, the child is nurtured well, the child grows eventually to not only uh, uh, love the parent for what the, the kid gets from the parent, though sometimes that seems to be quite, quite, quite a bit of it, but it's not all. But the child learns, and there's these wonderful moments where you can see that the child has come to love his parents for who they are. And that's where the Lord wants to lead us, to lead us to a place where we're humbled, where our self has been decentered, where God and his mercy has come into that place in the very center of our lives. And there we see his faithfulness, and that moves us to trust him and not ourselves. And that trust matures to love, and that love matures to intimacy. And then that intimacy then animates everything else in our lives. And so that when you hear the commands of Jesus, they all of a sudden sound like the happy path of freedom. That's the path to exaltation. It is a demanding path. Jesus promises that it'll pay off. Verse 29, he says it'll pay off both in this life and in the age to come. And if you think, well, well, that's exactly what a religious leader is likely to say, well, keep reading. Because at the end of our second reading, you can see that Jesus knows everything that he's talking about. Because Jesus never demands of us what he has not himself gone through. Jesus was on his way, as he said this, he was on his way to Jerusalem to die. That is to say, when Jesus looked at the rich young man and said, you're going to have to lose it all to gain everything. He said that precisely when Jesus was in the process of losing all to gain everything. And just like the tax collector, Jesus would go to Jerusalem and he would be despised by the religious leaders and by the political leaders. And just like the persistent widow, he would entrust himself to his father. And he would even experience something of what it is to have a prayer go unanswered when he's in the garden and he says, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to go to this suffering. If there's any way that this cup can pass from me, let it pass. And the father says, well, we don't hear what the father says, but we hear Jesus' response. Nevertheless, not mine, but your will be done. And then Jesus went to the cross and he lost it all. And then three days later, he gained everything. And why? So that he could justify tax collectors and even some religious leaders like me. So friends, look at Jesus. He is the pathway to exaltation. Everything in your life, every, all those, the, the exquisite pain of failure, and that ambition that is always leading you to reach for something just beyond your grasp. And then even when you reach it, it's never quite as good as you hoped it would be. All of those things are little hints to say that you're hungry for a better meal. When you look at Jesus and when you hear his voice and when you hear his call and when he says you're going to have to lose everything to gain it all, well, trust him because Jesus loves you and he's calling you to an exaltation that is beyond your imagining and whose joys are beyond your desiring. And it will satisfy you in this life and throughout the countless ages. Amen.
Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.